This is the Building Management Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. As people become more comfortable in the home building automation space, they want to be able to take this commercial as well. Regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if these manufacturers, these plants, and these entities want to stay open, they need water. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the MarketScale Building Management Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And today we're rejoined in the studio by Kem Aqua. But our guest today, it's his first time on the MarketScale Podcast. It's Dominic Tuzo. He's the manager for the Water Risk Management Services Group at Chem Aqua. And Dominic is coming in the studio to give us a little more insight into the evolution of the industrial water treatment industry from this general idea of asset protection to a more engaged version that's more focused on public safety. We've had other people from Chemaqua on the podcast before, including Tony Self and James McDonald, both of which talked on things that they were very passionate about, from airborne pathogens to industrial water week, and this time we're focusing on pathogens within water supply and uh, why the industry is more focused on safety than just being you know, protective of their assets. So, Dominic, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good afternoon. Yeah, great to have you here on the podcast. Always a pleasure chatting with Chem Aqua. So, Dominic, tell me a little bit about your position first. Uh, manager of Water Risk Management Services Group, it sounds pretty self-explanatory. You're managing uh, water risk services, but dig in a little bit more. How does what you do really represent this shift in the industry from just asset protection to more of an emphasis on public safety? I've been doing this for about 40 years, and and as you mentioned, in the beginning it was uh, we at Chemaqua yeah. are here to protect your coolant tower and protect your chiller, protect your piping from corrosion, from scale, from deposition, from microbiological fouling. Right. But uh, recent events and recent recent outbreaks uh, due to opportunistic waterborne pathogens have caused pretty much a paradigm shift into the public health sector. So now instead of just chemical engineers, instead of just microbiologists, now we have medical doctors, we have public health officials, we have CDC, we have state, uh, local city department of health involved in in building premises plumbing systems. And so at Chemaqua, how is what you do um, directly correlated to that paradigm shift? Uh, It all filters through the water risk management group, and we have uh, water risk management specialists that go out and conduct building surveys, assist with epidemiological investigations, help building owners, building managers, chief engineers, directors of infection control, manage their premise plumbing systems to reduce the likelihood of, of transmission of waterborne diseases to those most susceptible to it. So this evolution in the industrial water treatment industry, what really spurred it? And when did you start to see that transition from just asset protection to more of an emphasis on public safety? And then we'll dig more into how that's actually affecting the professionals within the industry. That's a, that's an excellent question. Well, hospitals, healthcare, nursing homes have always had a focus. They've always had infection preventionists right. uh, on staff, and that has always been um, um, 
sanitation, sterility, hygiene has always been an emphasis in healthcare. Mm -hmm. But in commercial buildings, hospitality, hotels, travel, tourism, um, the building we're in, for example, it never became uh, a priority until the probably 2015, the Legionella outbreak in the Bronx. And that revolutionized some laws in this country, um, the way certain industry leading experts have, have shifted their focus. Trade organizations have shifted the focus, and it's all going to public health now. Interesting. So I guess that one outbreak had a pretty large ripple effect throughout the whole industry. Um, what, what did it reveal about what was wrong, I guess in quotes, with, um, with how industrial water was being treated? Uh, until the Legionella outbreak of 2015, the building owners and managers were relying on the public water suppliers to uh, manage the, the hygiene of the water entering their buildings. Okay. Now, the onus or the burden is shifting on the property owners themselves to be responsible for the microbiological, chemical, and, and physical uh, constituents of the water in their building. So a building like this, has a gymnasium that people uh, might shower in, locker rooms, what have you. Um, this is where people are exposed to, to water. They're right. breathing in water vapor. So clearly after this Legionella outbreak, we saw a lot of very active response, both from the regulatory standpoint and then just from general culture shift that, okay, the industry feels like they need to have a heavier hand in the public safety aspect of industrial water treatment. How have these changing regulations and this culture shift affected the professionals within the industry? Um, are you seeing more of a personal investment from industrial water treatment professionals towards the public safety aspect? Or is this something more that's initiatives coming from the top down, trying to motivate the entire company or organization to get behind it? What are you seeing from the inside? Well, like, like any paradigm shift, you either get with the times or you get left behind. True. Um, there are smaller companies in our industry, some have been around 40 and 50 years, that after uh, some regulation went into effect, uh, predominantly in New York, New York State, New York City, they decided to close up shop hmm. and, and they won't do business there anymore. Um, in our industry, in particular, cooling towers, uh, uh, they're very visible. Uh, to the public. So a lot of public health officials place a lot of emphasis on sanitation and hygiene of cooling towers. But the CDC and, and statistics tell us that uh, of um, Legionnaire's disease uh, infections, only 20% of them come from cooling towers, 80% come from potable water, uh, domestic water, hmm. the building uh, water that we shower in and the water that we drink. Can't get Legionnaire's disease from drinking water, but you can get it from aspirating it, from breathing in droplets that are uh, a certain size. Um, and all of our buildings are a dead end to the public water mains. So although the water is treated uh, to prevent uh, dysentery uh, and, and things that would cause gastric disturbances in you and I if we drank the water. The water is not treated to, uh, to be sterile when it enters our buildings. Right. And man-made premise plumbing systems are the perfect breeding ground for these opportunistic premise plumbing pathogens, or OPPPs, mm -hmm. um, to, to breed and colonize 
uh, and rapidly amplify in our building systems. Um, the technology to detect them and the strategies to control them are only rapidly and recently evolving. For many years, we knew these existed, but for the most part, uh, our immune systems uh, were, were fighting them off. Now, particularly with one of our uh, major uh, bacterium that we're concerned with, and that's uh, Legionella, they, we, recent science, science as late as 2018, from uh, the Institut des Pasteurs and, and our own National Institutes of Health, have taught us that um, these bacteria can pretty much not hurt us in nature. We can go uh, water skiing, we can uh, swim in, in, in lakes, rivers, and streams, and you don't hear people getting Legionnaire's disease when they're out swimming or out uh, water skiing. But it gets in our buildings, is heated to a certain temperature because we like to live uh, warm in the winter and, and cool in the summer, and we yeah. like to live indoors. We have a lot of piping for a lot of different things. We might have hot tubs. Uh, we all like to take showers and, and baths and whatnot. And we, some of us have swimming pools and what have you. And, and we engineer these systems for our own comfort. And, and these bacteria, they're comfortable too in these, in these environments. So they rapidly multiply. And the reason these pathogens are called opportunistic is um, certain people who, who have um, uh, certain immune system compromises, they, uh, or, or those of us who may be elderly, those, those of us who may be smokers or have an underlying chronic condition, are more susceptible to infection by these than, than other people are. So the science is, is, still, is still developing, but the, the ways of combating these, these types of infection uh, are pretty much in four categories. We want to keep our systems as clean as possible. We want right. to keep the water moving to avoid stagnation. We want to um, keep the temperatures of the hot water hot enough to eradicate uh, uh, pathogens or keep them from amplifying. And we want to keep water cold enough, cold water cold enough, so that they don't get too comfortable and don't want to stick around. Right. But those four things sound like um, general processes that have been in place for a while. Have any of those changed dramatically to better combat these opportunistic pathogens in the last several years? And then how do industry professionals have to adjust their processes to do so? Everything you're saying, it's kind of almost uh, common sense. You would One would think. Right. However, it's quite the opposite. Energy savings and water savings technologies have actually exacerbated the problem and made things worse in our buildings. Hmm. Because now we're trying to conserve water, we're keeping stuff in the building longer, right. we're, we're increasing stagnation, increasing residence times of water, we're not flushing stuff out as quickly as possible. Just this morning I was working on a project uh, uh, with shower heads. Uh, I'm, I'll be 58 years old Monday. When I was a kid, a shower head was 3.5 gallons per minute. Mm -hmm. Today, in, in 2019, a normal shower head in the United States is 2.5 gallons per minute, and a low flow shower head, uh, like what's required in New York or California, is two gallons a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and some people will put an energy saving device on a two gallon per minute uh, shower and now bring it down to one and a half gallons right. per minute. So the water stays in the, the piping longer. And this causes uh, uh, bacteria to breed more in this water and it, and it exacerbates the problem.
that's a really interesting cause and effect. The fact that a social movement for um, energy efficiency from either individuals or companies actually brings up its own set of issues. Um, and that it, it's all becoming a lot clearer now as to why this is an issue that's only rised that's only come up in the last several years. It, it's uh, the one of the a former chairman of the ASHRAE 188 committee. Uh, ASHRAE stands for the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and, and 188 is the uh, uh, the standard to uh, minimize uh, legionellosis in, in, in buildings. And uh, Mr. Watson, he was a, the former uh, uh, chairman of that committee, said. And he's a, he's a PE, a professional engineer. He said that uh, not everything that is the most energy efficient is the safest. And he gave the example of if I drove my car with a cruise control on at 55 miles an hour, I get the best gas mileage in the world. But if there was a stop sign or a caution light or a stop light, and I didn't stop at that or slow down at that caution light because it would impact my energy efficiency or my miles per gallon, I might get through one or two or three red lights. Right. But sooner or later, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or myself. Right. And and everything has its its cause and effect. Everything has a, a consequence. No man's an island. We don't live in a vacuum. So right. some things we do to save energy have impact elsewhere in our man-made uh uh, plumbing systems in our, in our buildings and the things that we want to keep us comfortable. Interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. So before this podcast, you mentioned just more generally that one of the biggest challenges in the industrial water treatment industry right now is competing interests. And so I'd like to have you expand on that a little bit and tell me how might those competing interests affect this issue as well of um, of opportunistic pathogens and their unlikely and unprecedented spread. We have different industry organizations approaching a problem from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, people in, in public health, in the medical community, in infection control, who uh, take a clinical perspective. And we have laboratories and whatnot, and they're very heavily towards we want to test. We want to look and try and detect as many of these pathogens as possible so that uh, we can figure out a way to combat them. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, that is only a small piece of the, of the larger puzzle. Um, often these pathogens cannot be detected um, because they morph. They, they change states. They'll go inside of biofilms, and you won't even be able to find them. Right. Um, sometimes, let's know, for example, uh, we only found out recently the uh, the biphasic nature of it. So it can be either avirulent and, and uh, non-transmissive. It's replicating while it's inside a host microorganism. Or it could be um, looking to invade or evade a host. It has a, a whole life cycle. Trying to find it in water and test for it and relying only on those test results is kind of a lopsided approach because more often than not, you will not be able to detect it. So we have to approach the systems. The engineering approach now would be assume it's there, it's ubiquitous in nature, but it only hurts us when it gets in our buildings. Right. So let's take the engineering approach to engineer it out of our buildings. So that would be a, another way to look at it. Uh, a third way to look at it would be uh, 
from the remediatory approach. Okay, we found it, now what do we do about it? Well, now we have to eradicate it. Uh, certainly there are different uh, methodologies that can be uh, applied to industrial devices like process device or devices, um, uh, can, cannery lines, and cooling towers for HVAC uh, comfort cooling versus the water we're gonna drink and bathe in, potable water, domestic water. We have to do everything within the Safe Drinking Water Act. So there's different remediation strategies that will work to help um, eradicate the, these uh, pathogens or reduce bacteria in water systems. Not all of them are appropriate for every device. Uh, recently we had a contact lens manufacturer that got it in the line that made contact lenses. Mm -hmm and they wanted to know if we could apply chlorine to kill the bacteria. And we said, well, we don't have a chlorine that is, is uh, FDA registered uh, or EPA uh, registered to go in the human eye. Right. So we have to take a different approach. So we took a filtration approach to prevent that particular bacteria from further getting in their process line. Um, so the competing interests are among the different ways of looking at a problem to solve it. Yeah. And then you have different laws and different regulations. The state may say one thing. Right. The the city or the municipality may say another. Here in Texas, for example, um, the, the Texas Department of uh, Health and Human Services has a Legionella task force. They say something for acute care hospitals and nursing homes. They're pretty much silent uh, when it comes to commercial buildings, condominiums, apartments. The city of Garland, Texas, however, has very specific regulations for apartment buildings and condominiums that are not found elsewhere in the state. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, when you're balancing local government, federal government, um, private organizations and uh, manufacturers and then the um, citizens that maybe live in or operate within said building I mean you're you're balancing a lot of different interests and people want different things uh, you know let's say you gotta you gotta fix this issue and you have to shut the building down for a while that is a competing interest with people that operate or live or teach within this building so yeah you're right I mean it's it's a tricky situation because really you want to get on top of it early and you want your facility managers to be preventative, not reactive, because then you have to shut down your building, etc. So to wrap things up, as these regulations get tighter and we see more of these issues, because I don't think we're going to be stepping away from this green movement anytime soon. No. Um, so we're probably going to see this exacerbated even more oh, um, in schools, in apartment complexes, in um, in large corporate office buildings, even maybe like the one we're in. So. As these regulations get tighter, as these initiatives continue and we see more of these pathogens populating and causing issues, how should facility managers be trained and educated on being responsible for the microbiological quality of their water? All of us are having to do more for ourselves yeah. as technology progresses. We, we think that technology uh, makes life easier, but, th but think about this. Not too long ago, you went into the bank and you met a teller, and the teller did all the work for you. Sure. Now you've got to push buttons on your phone or on your computer, uh, or uh, you've got to go to an ATM to do this work. Um, years ago, people would check your oil for you. They would clean your windows for you. They would fill your car with gas. Now, rain or snow, you got to get out of your car, and you got to pump your own gas. So 
building owners, hospital owners, they got to start pumping their own gas. What's going to happen is the, the burden is going to shift from the public water suppliers to the buildings themselves, and that is slowly evolving. It is indeed a paradigm shift. The warning signs were there, but unfortunately it took uh, some drastic action uh, taken by legislators, particularly in New York, to, to maybe wake us up from our slumber, so to speak. Well, it's going to be something that we're going to obviously see throughout this year and over the next several years. Like I said, I don't think these um, climate conscious initiatives are going to be going anywhere. And if, if they are... Not if we like cheap gas. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and if, if they are part of the issue, then I think we're just going to see more of these potentially risky plumbing situations. You're absolutely right. And so we definitely need to motivate the industry to adapt quickly and to be proactive instead of reactive. So, Dominic, I'd really like to thank you for coming in the thank studio you. and giving us your insight on this topic. I definitely learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did too. Great. I hope to, uh, hope to see you again. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous ones, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.